Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Today on 30 Minutes, a special rebroadcast from the 2014 Tucson Festival of Books. This is part one of a two-part series. Thank you for joining us. The presentations you see here are brought to you by Nuestras Raices, a Pima County Public Library program that builds community by celebrating Mexican-American authors, arts, and culture. The following presentation and all those at our tent are made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Pima County Public Library. Our next, next presentation is Growing Up Latino in the United States Memoirs. Today you'll be listening to Reading Retablo's author Rigoberto Gonzalez and Walking Home, Growing Up Hispanic in Houston, author Sara Cortez. Read from their memoirs in both poetry and pose and discuss how writing chronicles cultural and spiritual heritages, identities, and personal journeys. And now I'd like to introduce you to the moderator for this presentation, Pima County Public Library's own Tony Weiner. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. We appreciate you being here. I'm very excited uh, to be a part of the festival this year, and I'm very happy to introduce our authors. I'm just going to introduce them and let them give you a little bit of background, and then we'll start with our, our talk. So we have Ms. Sarah Cortez and Mr. Rigoberto Gonzalez. So, great. And, and Sarah, if you'd like to give us a little bio, just a brief intro. In terms of a brief bio, I would just like to make a few comments related specifically to memoir because that's why we're gathered here today. I have been uh, teaching, reading, writing, and thinking deeply about memoir or stories generated by memory uh, for about 15 years. And uh, I find it one of the most fascinating types of writing that's going on, particularly in America right now, where the emphasis has always been so much on the individual and the particularities and uniquenesses of different individuals' cultural heritages. Okay, so I'm going to read just a short fragment from my memoir, Walking Home. And to introduce you to this book, I would like to say that I wanted to do something different than simply give the reader a chronological summary of events from my life. So what I did in constructing this memoir was look at three generations within my family, and I wrote the unlived dreams of myself and my parents. I was an only child, there were three of us. I wish, I felt that I knew my parents well enough and I certainly know myself well enough to know what we wanted to accomplish but never did. So the first section of the book is in prose and it's the unlived dreams of myself and my parents. And I'll read you the first dream of the person I knew most, uh, knew the best growing up, which was my mother. While ironing one afternoon in the front bedroom, my mother steps into her sweetest dream. This dream spins itself in a world far from this white, wood-framed farmhouse in the hot, sandy soil of Floresville, Texas. Far from the daily, twice-daily, 
milking of cows, near dawn collecting of hen's eggs, and slopping the hogs. Far from this place made safe by the endless hard work of her parents, a sister, her brothers, and herself. My mother dreams children as black-headed as she. Dark-skinned, roly-poly babies to be swung and tickled. Slightly older babies experimenting on fat brown legs, the miracle of walking. Children with pupils black as a starless night. She can see how her children, herself, and an unimaginable husband will pray the rosary every night, as is done in her parents' house. The oval kitchen table and chairs pulled back so everyone can kneel in a circle on the warm linoleum. My mother dreams of cooking every night for her large family, one child a year. She will roll out tortillas, the cast iron griddle hot against the lard, flour, and milk. The fragrance of reward and dusk, homecoming. She wonders which of her many children will be her favorite. In this household, she is a favorite both of her young mother and her older father. The sweat starts to bead on her forehead. There's not much breeze in Texas summers, even in this room, and the, with the wide screen windows on two sides and the front door propped open. She doesn't mind the sweat of hard work. No one here on the farm does anything but work. It gives both routine and the meaning for routine. One day, she will starch and iron for many children. She can feel it coming. It's going to be a good future. The anticipation welling up from deep inside, too deep to even try to understand. She feels it in the irregular beating of her heart, a rhythm she will not understand until her deathbed its last visitation. Sometimes when she is trying to sleep at night, this heart of hers jumps inside her thin chest. At those moments, she doesn't move. She doesn't ask her younger sister lying next to her for help, frowning even as she sleeps. No, she waits listening to the coyotes howl and the farm dogs, dogs bark in return. She concentrates on the familiar smell of sand. Finally, sleep will overtake her, her lips stopping in mid-word. Her nightgown will be soaked with sweat. She will not mention her odd dancing heart even to her beloved mother in the morning. Thank you. Thank you. And, and now I'd like Rigoberto to introduce himself and perhaps read for us. Buenos dias, hello, hope you can, everybody can hear me. I can hear everything, so for us it's a little bit disconcerting, but hopefully you can hear us, that's what we are here to do. 
But thank you so much for being here. Um, my family uh, came from Michoacan in uh, 1980. I was 10 years old. Uh, since then, I have used that experience to shape so much of my art, so much of my work. And the reason I decided to do that, because I wanted to tell my own story. I didn't want anybody to tell it for me. So I'm just going to read a, a small section from the newest book, Reading Retablos. And this is, uh, takes place in 1983, so three years after my family uh, comes to, uh, from Michoacan to California and tries to adjust. And one of the things that we wanted to adjust to was this wonderful little thing called Easter, the way that they celebrated in the United States with that little funny little rabbit. My family took to Easter much like it took to Halloween, because even though we were a non-church-going, day-of-the-dead celebrating immigrant family from Michoacan, we wanted to fit in. We nailed down the basics, plastic Easter eggs filled with candy, marshmallow peeps, and chocolates shaped like bunnies. And then, once we renamed the religious holiday, El Dia de la Coneja, the Day of the Rabbit, we filled in the rest of the blanks the Gonzalez way. That meant buying braids of intestines, cured sirloin and beer, oiling the shotguns and heading out to the middle of the Southern California desert where the men in our family got drunk and lit the grill with gasoline siphon from one of their cars. Because this was what my family did, I learned to enjoy it, though I knew Americans celebrated Easter much differently. I had seen them do so many times on television with their delicately decorated eggs and baskets brimming with curly seaweed grass. Still, I liked the freedom of the desert, the way the adults clustered around the food and laughed while the kids were allowed to explore unsupervised. We'd climb trees and boulders, fall and skin our knees, pick wildflowers, and above all, we'd keep our eyes open for snakes. And don't scare it away if you find one, Abuelo called out. That's lunch. I remember these outings as the only times we actually looked like a happy family. And I always regretted that we were so far off the main roads that not a single car passed by to take note of our harmony. How unfortunate that the neighbors had such a one-sided view of us. Nineteen people squeezed into a tiny apartment in which ten kids ran out of the house fleeing the belt, and nine adults argued on the porch until someone threw a half-consumed beer at someone else, and the can would stay on the ground growing warm for hours until someone had sense enough to pick it up. But at Easter Sunday outing, no one got a beer thrown at them, not even in jest. Instead, the radio played and we'd laugh at Abuelo dancing with a piece of meat dangling from the tongs. And then, once the men got a few drinks in them, they walked over to the car and popped open the trunk. On one such Easter celebration, from the corner of my eye, I saw my uncle pull out the burlap sack containing the shotguns, and that's when my anxiety began. All week, my uncle kept promising my older cousins that this year was their turn to shoot and eat, and each time he mentioned it, my cousins would beam. I wasn't too keen on the idea, so I didn't react. My father must have misunderstood my apathy for wistfulness, because on one occasion, he walked up behind me and said, Don't worry, I'll make sure you get your turn too. I was too stunned to correct him, so when the sack came out of the trunk, I hoped they would forget it was my turn to shoot, but my cousins hadn't forgotten. As soon as they noticed the guns being pulled out, they ran over hollering and left me sitting alone on a rock. What was it about guns that intrigued the men in my family? I didn't understand it. I had grown up around them, rifles for hunting deer, BB guns for pigeons and doves. I was more interested in the shells, big plastic ones with copper base, round like a penny, and metal ones that I could use to whistle. 
One time I pocketed so many, my shorts kept sliding down my hips, and my father made me throw them out before I climbed back into the car. The truth was, guns frightened me. Their weight, their bang, their boom, the ricochet that left my ears ringing, the harm they did to the birds whose eyes looked so human with the lids closed. That was my job on those hunting trips. I had to pick them up off the ground, dig for them in the brush, the red wound disrupting the smooth surface of feathers and down. Sometimes my uncle would pluck them on the spot and their naked little bodies on Pipple's skin looked violated, not edible at all. I had never killed the living thing except for an injured hummingbird once and by accident because I thought I was saving its life by pulling out that funny looking twig sticking out of its beak. As soon as I figured out it was its tongue, I burst into tears and prayed for forgiveness over its tiny grave for over a month. But neither did I want to shoot a gun. Guns were not pretty or graceful or pleasant. They were vulgar things without much imagination. They caused damage or death and nothing else. And you can read the rest when you buy the book. We'll continue with Growing Up Latino in the United States, memoirs from the 2014 Festival of Books here on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Thank you both. Thank you. I, I know you both write so many different genres. Um, are there any that are, is more of a challenge for you, or do you feel comfortable in all of those different genres? That amazes me because so many authors seem to write kind of their one style, and you have all these different styles. And even just in memoirs, there's the different styles. In thinking about or talking about the different genres I write in, excuse me, I started out as a fiction writer. I love writing fiction. I still write it. I segued into literary poetry. I'll take over. <laughs> anyway, so I'll talk a little bit about the multi-genre. You know, don't no worry. I, I built it into the act. Don't screw it up. Keep coughing. Uh, you know, I'm a poet first and foremost. I love poetry. It's my first love. But, you know, I, it wasn't until the United States, uh, in, in the writing programs, they do ask us to specialize. They say, are you a fiction writer? Are you a poet? And they track you that way. And, you know, I come from, a, I, I look at the uh, Latin American writers, and Latin American writers are, are multi-genre. I mean, everybody was a journalist, like Garcia Marquez, he was a journalist. He also wrote his novels. Octavio Paz was also a poet as well as a journalist. He also wrote short stories. So those were always my models. And one of my first models when I, when I uh, started the, um, uh, thinking as a, as a professional writer was it, Margaret, of all people, Margaret Atwood. I actually should say that because I love her work. But she, she's also a fiction writer and poet. So I didn't know that you had to specialize as, as one or the other. I thought, well, that's what a writer does. A writer writes. Uh, and, and since then, I've, I've, I've moved into other, other venues. I'm also book critics. So I write book reviews. I write essays about books. Um, I also, the only thing I haven't done is plays. I wrote a really bad play, uh, which I lost, and I hope nobody actually has it somewhere, archived, you know, somewhere. Uh, and write, but other than that, it's, it's, it's very freeing to be able to navigate from one genre to another because it keeps me from having this thing that I hear. It's, it happens to some writers. I never suffered it, and I don't believe in it, which is writer's block. How can I have writer's block if I can't write a poem, then I write something else? Yeah, I, you know? I totally agree. Writer's block is a myth. If you're a writer or would-be writer, please do not go and indulge your misery by reading a book about writer's block, because it's like reading a book about tropical diseases. You read it, and you convince yourself you have 
the symptom or the disease or you have writer's block. So, yeah, And also like reading is part of writing. People forget that. That as a writer, when you're reading, you are also writing. You're also you know, allowing these, these wheels spin inside your head. So when my students sometimes tell me, you know, I'm having a hard, hard time writing. Well, can you still read? Can you still read? Then read a book because that's part of the process. And you never know what kind of trigger is going to, is going to uh, push you into, the, into whatever it is. It's this, this mythical wall that you seem to have come across. You never know what's going to knock it down. It could be somebody else's writing. Right. And... Uh, and forgive me, thank you for letting me <laughs> hand the baton to you, Rico. Rico. Um, I started as a fiction writer. I still love fiction. Uh, when I decided to leave my corporate career and take almost a 75% pay cut to go into police work, uh, which I did 20 years ago, which is the best thing I've ever done, um, under the, the stress and duress of, of uh, failing marriage and Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Losing my social status, people started treating me like I was dumb because I was a blue collar worker as opposed to a white collar worker. All of that, I started uh, writing and reading poetry, and my poetry career sort of took off. My first published book was a book of poetry called "How to Undress a Cop," and the instructions work. It's not featured at this festival, but for any of you who like men or women in uniform, the instructions work. Um, and I do believe, for me, I agree completely with Rigo, um, a writer writes sort of almost everything. So it never occurred to me to want to limit myself only to poetry or only to fiction. I also notice in your writing, uh, it's pretty intense sometimes, the, mm -hmm. the subject matter yeah. secrets, so, so to speak, yes. uh, of your families and yourselves that you reveal. Is there anything too scary to write about? Uh, or do you hesitate to, to write about certain things? Or do you just bear it all? Well, I, with due respect to the question <laughs> and due respect to the person, our uh, uh, most esteemed moderator, I would like to say that I think of memoir definitely in terms of craft. In other words, just because it's true doesn't make it interesting. And just because it's true doesn't mean it needs to be part of a particular book. So, uh, you know, I always I do a lot of teaching. I've taught creative writing for many years. And I always, you know, remind people and remind myself of those, uh, I believe, truths. And also, I think, you know, there is an ethics to writing, even though there are many people who do not have ethics who write. I mean, there's people without ethics everywhere in the world. But for me, just because there was a certain family, quote-unquote, secret or tragedy, doesn't mean I, even though I'm a person committed to truth in memoir, need to put it in a book or write about it. So, this, so I would say this is a crafted whole, I try to make a narrative whole and keep the integrity of the, the work of art or work of literature, which I hope somebody might consider to be art, as an integral piece. And if it includes certain items about my family, it does, but there's many, 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 many items that it does not. You know, I always think of the, uh, uh, the quote from Annie Dillard, also a memoirist, who said, writing is an art, it's not a martial art. And I think that as a writer, if, if you proceed with, with complete integrity and honesty, 
uh, about the story, uh, about the experience. It's just, it's only one person's truth, one person's journey. Uh, it's, it's not, or, or another memoirist, um, uh, Lucy Greeley said, you know, this book is, is not, it, it's not, it's not what happened, it's what I remembered, right? Because memory is also flawed. So whatever you, material that, that we cultivate, I mean, the way I proceed, I proceed with it is that if, as long as I'm not hurting anybody else intentionally, will somebody get upset or will they, or they get hurt? You know what? I think sometimes they will. And we've seen how people write very personal stories about trauma, about abuse. And sometimes those stories have to be out there because they're also serving a kind of service. They're one voice to many other voices that are not being heard. So I think there's also a larger responsibility. I mean, craft is certainly one of them, you know, to craft, but also to, to the story that deserves to be told. And, I, and as for me, you know, when I wrote, um, uh, when I wrote my first memoir, there was one thing that I could not write about. I referenced it very, very uh, succinctly in, in the memoir, and that was about my childhood poverty. And it was something that I couldn't really reconcile for a very long time. It took me 30 years to be able to write about it. And that's what the second book is, uh, Autobiography of My Hungers. So it took me 30 years to write very specific and concretely about what it was like to, to suffer hunger as a, as a young man. Uh, but I wasn't ready. So that's another kind of advice to, to those of you uh, that are perhaps attempting to, to write something that's very personal or very painful. You know, there, there's a, certainly a therapeutic benefit to it, but is there a story there? Uh, and also, you know, are you, are you ready to write about it? Uh, that's something only you know, only you know. Yes, excellent advice. <laughs> um, also, in, in writing all the different genres, you're reaching many different audiences. Um, is there a really tough audience to reach? I always say teens are really hard in the library because they so don't want to be there. It's so not cool to be there, you know. Um, but if we can get a book in their hands, it's like, yes, or get them to come to a program. Um, is there an audience that you write for or write to that you seem to... Still a struggle to reach. You know, I, I'm always asked, for example, if I if I write in Spanish or if my work is translated, and uh, and uh, because so many of my of my work does, it's about the borderlands and, and also moves into Mexico. But I'm writing in, in English. My education is in English, even though I am fluent in Spanish. I do not write in Spanish. Uh, so I'm always asked, well, is your work translated? Would, would you feel comfortable if your work? went down to, to, to Mexico and would somebody benefit from it? And I think so. I, but I, I also don't want to be confused as a Mexican writer because Mexico has its Mexican writers. You know, I'm a Chicano writer. I'm an American writer. So I don't want to say, yeah, I want my work to go down there because there are no Mexican writers writing these stories. There are Mexican writers out there writing the stories. So I don't want to just, you know, encroach on that, on that territory. But I think that there is a dialogue that, uh, that's missing in terms of what those of us of Mexican descent who are writing in this country, uh, how we imagine Mexico, how we imagine the homeland, how we, what we think about our identity, what we think about um, uh, the borderland, why we are so loyal to, uh, to the United States, uh, why we are so nostalgic about Mexico, even those of us that have never been down there. I mean, that's an interesting conversation to, to, to have, and I think maybe that's one audience that, that, uh, that I don't reach because I don't quite know how to do that. I don't quite know how to do that. I would, I would say different genres, at least in my imagination. You know, it's hard to get away from imagination and projection, I think, for the human animal. Uh, the audience in my imagination that I think 
is difficult to reach is the audience who thinks they do not like poetry. That poetry is only highbrow, inexplicable, unimaginable, you know, the entrails of the god, you know, Apollo or something. You know, completely, you know, you got to be anointed and be the priest at the temple to stick your fingers in it and make sense out of it. And, um, and of course, there's a lot of poetry out there. There's a lot of academic poets, for lack of a better descriptor, who specialize in writing books nobody can understand. And they do that so their friends, who are PhD students, can write their PhD thesis on that book so they can get their own PhD and, and write another book nobody else understands. I mean, you know, it's fine if you're part of that system. I, I am not. Uh, I was explaining to somebody earlier today, I said, I, I, my degrees are not in creative writing. I do not have a degree in English. I will publish my 10th book this upcoming fall. You know, I've, I'm, I've won awards, not, not as big awards as my fellow panelist, um, you know, I'm, I'm content and happy, and I've worked at this 26 years. Um, and I, I, I still wish there were, I could get the message to more and more people that just because you go into a Barnes and Noble and you pick up 15 or 25 books of poetry and you don't like any of them, I probably wouldn't either although I've devoted a lot of time, care, and attention to being an excellent or, or at least, I hope, competent poetry teacher and poet. And so that's the audience I would like to reach. All of you out there who think you do not like poetry or that it's completely inexplicable. You've been listening to Growing Up Latino in the United States, Memoirs from the 2014 Festival of Books. Our guests today were Red Inked Retablos author Rigoberto Gonzalez and Walking Home Growing Up Hispanic in Houston author Sarah Cortez, reading from their memoirs and discussing how their writing chronicles cultural and spiritual heritages, identities, and personal journeys. The panel was moderated by Toby Weiner. This panel was hosted by the Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices Tent at the Festival of Books. Nuestras Raices' mission is celebrating Mexican-American authors, arts, and culture. This has been part one of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. <laughs>